Hello, welcome into the Monjummer podcast with Mike and Mike. This is Mike Dawson, the managing editor of Monjummer magazine. I am doing the intro honors this week because my co-host, Mike Johnston of Mike'sLessons.com, is in upstate New York doing a drum camp with his friends Matt Halpern and JP Bouvet. So this week we are going to crack open the March 2016 issue of Modern Drummer, which features Shinedown drummer Barry Kirch on the cover. We'll also talk about Sabian's new revised HH series. We have a bunch of listener questions to get to, and Mike's going to explain a little bit more about his article that's in the March issue, which is his Hidden Rhythms Part 2. And then we have some picks of the week, so let's get into it. Oh, and we recorded this on February 1st, so that'll be why the intro is a little, sounds a little dated. All right, see ya. Episode 27. You know it's it's uh it's February first today. That's right. I couldn't believe it. You know, Groundhog yeah. Day tomorrow. Do you think he's going to see a shadow or what? You know, I think that must be an East Coast thing. We really don't care. Like, <laughs> Do you even have groundhogs? <laughs> no. And our weather's the same almost all year long. I mean, I, I know that every time I mention this, I get more people that hate me. But, I, yeah, I don't think it's a big deal here. I mean, really the biggest – when you say Groundhog Day, I think of the Bill Murray movie, and that's about it. That's an amazing, amazing movie. That's a fantastic movie. So what kind of wildlife do you have that eat your gardens? Uh, None. No, you don't have like chipmunks or. No, we have deer. I think, you know, for where I live, I live on the river in California. So our biggest thing, it's not really. Nobody messes with our gardens, they mess with our pets. So we have have a lot of skunks here. And so your pets constantly get skunked. Right, right. um, Which sucks. And because they, they, to get the skunk smell off, the only thing they can do is rub themselves on your furniture. Yeah. Yeah. I've had that experience. And you're just throwing (laughs) tomato juice at them. And uh, so we have lots of skunks. And then the one thing that's probably, I don't know, maybe it's not as much of an East Coast thing, but we have tons of possums. Yeah. Um, So we have lots of possums. And those are violent little creatures if you have a cat or a dog that's out in the yard. And then lots of raccoons. So. All right. Well, yeah. You're missing out on the And I mean, and billions of squirrels. I mean, billions so <laughs> by the way i was talking to um do you know the comedian bill burr i know his work yeah okay so him and i have worked together for a while now and i've been i kind of make private videos for him when he's touring so okay. it's like okay here's that didn't sound good i don't make private videos for him. <laughs> i make videos for him video what drum lessons. They go on? <laughs> yeah sorry <laughs> that's mike's lessons.com after hours um so i make video lessons for him for when he's in his hotel so it's like okay i'm gonna be stuck in a hotel for the next three months doing this comedy tour and then i say okay i'll make you some hand technique videos so anyways we were talking at one point and, he, and he's like hey man because he knows that I mix kind of, kind of some comedy into my clinics. And, and he was like, where are you going next? And I said, uh, I'm going to China. And then after that, I'll be over in Europe. And he's like, real quick, make sure you don't reference things that are Californian-based because they won't get it. And I'm like, okay, I don't, I don't know what you mean. And he's like, I just was in Poland or maybe he was in Iceland. He's like, but I did a 30-minute shtick on squirrels. And no one laughed. And way after the show, I realized they or someone told me, what's that squirrel thing you keep talking about? And they don't know what a squirrel is. So (laughs) none of it made any sense to them just because he just thought everyone had squirrels, you know. So I I had to take out uh, all of the things where I'm like, I don't know if you guys have possums here in China. I'm not going (laughs) to reference that. I don't think that joke's going to go over very well. Like the, uh, uh, so well, cool. Well, I'll be in your uh, I'll be in your land very soon, man. I'll, I'm flying to New York tomorrow. Yeah, well, it looks like you're going to have a decent trip. You're not going to get routed to Seattle or Minneapolis like they did for me. So you should be good I getting know. in. 
that's a beautiful thing. I'm very, very excited about flying on a lucky time because, yeah. Uh, yeah, there's nothing worse than that. I mean, I'm sure, though, knowing myself, Matt, and JP, since we're doing it for this camp together, I'm sure we booked the cheapest travel possible. <laughs> so I'll probably get that routing anyways. You know, <laughs> At some point, I'll be on like a tugboat that has to get to a little private jet. Oh, private jet makes it sound expensive. Uh, private prop plane. Yeah, exactly. Prop duster. <laughs> Exactly. All right. Well, let's just dive right into it. So uh, you said we have some listener questions. Yeah, so I got three of them here. Let's try to get through all three of them. Um, Boom. Let's see. The first one, I think this one was a Instagram message or maybe a Facebook message. I'm not sure. But it's from Michael Beachley. Yeah. And he wanted to know, how do we deal with rehearsal bands when you're trying to make a living and everyone else is not so into it? Um, how much time should you waste on a band, um, or should you be real cut and dry from the start? Um, like, what you know? Do you intend to actually gig, or is it just a hobby? Sure. Yeah, that's tough. I mean, I, I can say right off the bat that value is more important than money. So you have to think, what is the value in this situation? A good example of that is two years ago, I was in a uh, a fusion group, and it was my first group ever that was maybe 90% improvised music. Uh, the guitar player's name is an awesome guy that's really good at the guitar. <laughs> oh, my God. It was only like two years ago. You're uh, distracted, brother. <laughs> bro, I swear. I had so much going on. Anyways, um, Tyson Graff. Holy crap. Anyways, he's a fantastic guitar player. He graduated from Berkeley, and he studied with Wayne Krantz. Um, and Wayne Krantz was his idol. So... This was brand new for me, and the value in being in that group was that I had never been in an, in a group that improvised most of the music. So even though the gigs were paying almost nothing, and a lot of the times I would even tell him, you know what, it's paying so little, and you put so much effort into making this gig happen, don't give me any money, because my value is the fact that I'm learning how to improvise. Yeah. That was a drum lesson in itself to me. I would have paid so much money to just be in that band to learn how to improvise. So there was huge value in that for me, even though there was no money in it for me. Um, so I think that that's something that you have to think about. If you're in a band where you're not growing at all, then the only value is the money that's coming in from the gigs and moving forward. But if you're in a band where every day you're becoming a better musician just from rehearsals, then that's that's value too. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. There's, there's a couple bands... I'm kind of doing a bunch of different things. I work in some original projects, and I work in some just gigging cover band type stuff. And it's completely what you're saying. Like the original bands, I'm willing to sacrifice my time and effort because there's something about the music that's challenging me. Like one band is pretty heavy rock, and I haven't, I just don't really play that style. So it's demanding a lot, you know, a lot more power, a lot more precision. Like I've I've learned, I need to really work on my bass drum dexterity because all those riffs have to be locked in with the bass drums. So that, but that band doesn't really pay unless we bring a bunch of people out to the gigs. We basically get whatever we bring. So that's that's an investment. I'm willing to do it. But here's the thing with that band: if if I let it be, they would we would rehearse two three times a week. I've had to just say this goes back to his question. Like I, I'm into the project. I'm a professional drummer. I I'm used to getting paid. I want to do this, but I can only rehearse if we have a gig. So if it's yeah. a band that just rehearses and rehearses and rehearses and just kind of talks about possibly playing a show, and if you're not feeling that, get out of it. But if they're booking gigs and they're booking good gigs, then there's a reason to rehearse. 
Right. So that's yeah. my stipulation. I'll rehearse once before the gig, twice if maybe there's a, somebody filling in. But in general, I don't do the weekly just let's just get together and rehearse. Because to me, I'd rather yeah. just be home practicing if that's the case. I totally agree. And I think that you get to a level of musicianship where, hey, we shouldn't need to – we should all be practicing on our own. So, yeah, exactly. you know, and that's that's the one thing that I found about when I was – Growing up in the jazz world, in the school music program, and everyone that I knew that played music, they were studied. Um, even as kids, we we were all studied. You know, I mean, I, I, yeah. you could be eight years old and you're talking about the circle of fifths with your buddies because right. you're all in school music program. So when I came from that, and it was kind of one of those things, like you said, you know, we'd have our combo classes and our quartets and our trios. And you would just, you know, maybe get together once, but it would be weird to practice every day in a in a jazz combo because then it's like well i don't want it i don't want it to be this predicted right exactly. you know we all we practice our butts off at home so that we can come together and make as much magic as 12 year olds can and then when i got into the rock band world i noticed that when when we would go home for the day my guitar player and bass player they would put their guitar and bass in their cases and leave them at the practice space yes yeah, terrible and i was like I was like, wait, I don't, don't you have to play your scales or something? I have to work on my rudiments. And they were like, yeah, I'll see you next week at practice. And I'm like, so you're not going to touch your instrument until we practice again? Yeah, That's I can't crazy. deal with that. No, no. So I think that – and those, those two situations exist. And I think you and I are at a level where if I'm playing with anybody, I'm assuming they're practicing every day at home. And like you said, we only need one band rehearsal. So Yeah. Yeah, my, my philosophy is a band gets together to rehearse the show, not to learn the songs. If you don't know the songs, then let's not rehearse. Yeah, the only other situation that allows for rehearsals would be if it's a collaborative writing process. Yeah. And they say, hey, we want to get together and write some new tunes. Then I totally get it. But if the tunes are already written and we all have the you know the demo scratch tracks of it, we can practice at home. So yeah. so yeah, so Michael, I think you just have to find the value in the situation. And if you realize the situation doesn't have any value, then it's it's okay to get out of that situation. Yeah, cool. Well, the next question, um, it's a real quick one that I'll just answer. It came from Mike Malone. He emailed and wanted to know what's up with Crescent Symbols. Uh, I guess he was following him before and maybe he wasn't aware that they were purchased by Sabian. So a little to backtrack on Crescent. Crescent actually was the USA division of Bosphorus at one point. And the owner of that, he, he parted ways with Bosphorus, started Crescent, took took the artist with him, which would include Jeff Hamilton and Stanton Moore and Daniel Glass and a bunch of other people. And then I think it was maybe a year and a half ago, I don't remember, but Sabian purchased, well, Sabian signed on to produce all Crescent symbols for the North American market at one point. So Crescent wanted to get away from importing Turkish symbols and have a USA manufacturer. So that was Sabian. And then following up on that, they ended up just selling the company to Sabian. So Sabian now owns Crescent's designs, and, wow, okay. and this year it, at NAM they introduced the they you know they they uh, brought out the Vanguard series, which was a Crescent line. So the, the Sabian Vanguard series is the first of several Crescent symbols to be coming out under the Sabian umbrella. So Crescent symbols does not exist anymore. But oh, okay. So I'm just getting it now. So you're saying that Sabian bought out the designs and they'll move them into the Sabian line, not yes. keep Crescent alive. Okay. No, Crescent wow. is the brand. Crescent does not exist anymore. But so the dude cashed out, like straight up. He's like, take yeah. it, I'm gone. Yeah, I think there's some sort of, <laughs> of, of licensing agreement for the interim for a few years. Um, wow. Okay. So yeah, and I do believe that they are also designing, still going to be putting out the Stanton Moore series, the Jeff Hamilton series. 
So I think they're still working on those. But the Vanguard is their like super thin, jazzy series. That was a Crescent line. Now it's under the HH series for Sabian. Okay. Got it. Got it. Yeah, so that Fantastic. was question number two. And the third question, which is one that we could probably talk about for hours, um, Tyler wanted to know um, if we've ever had to deal with imposter syndrome and how do we overcome it. So if you don't know what imposter syndrome is, it is basically the feeling that you're a fraud and you're just waiting to be exposed for being a fraud. And it usually happens with people who achieve a certain level of, of success and they don't feel like they deserve it. Yeah, man. Um, yeah. It's a big one, and I will say personally, I deal with it every single day of my life, and I have my entire life. It's just been a, a part of my mentality. I'm always doubting myself. I'm a fear and self-loathing. and So to answer his question, how do you deal with it? I mean, for me, it's, there's, there's either fight or flight. You either yeah. curl up in a ball, get, you know, start doing drugs and never leave your house because you're just afraid of everything, or you just attack it head on. So for me, I hate public speaking. I do a lot of public speaking. Um, I hate performing in front of people. I'm a professional drummer. You know, so it's just boy. <laughs> I have to do it. Every time I'm pulling up the work, I'm like, no one wants to read what I have to say. Well, I'm going to write a bunch of product reviews. I'm going to do a cover story. I don't, I don't feel adequate to do this podcast. But yet every week we log in and right. we, we talk about things that I, <laughs> that I feel I have no right to talk about. You know? Dude, well, you know what? I mean, I think this podcast is a good example of maybe what I went through with my imposter syndrome. When you and I started this podcast – we really did it for us. We it was kind of like, well, let's we have great phone conversations. Let's just start to record them and make them a little more focused. But all of a sudden, you know, I I just I just did a clinic at Bentley's Drum Shop and Buck August was there. We read his question on. Oh wow! You <laughs> yeah, know, yeah. and I got to meet him, and he gave me like a hand gripper because he's like, "Hey, I heard on the podcast you like to <laughs> use these. This is what the real bodybuilders use." And I'm like. <laughs> what you actually listen you know and then i've been having people in the industry mention things like someone in the industry said something about sexy tuplets and i'm like do you listen to the podcast he's like yeah every every week i was like wow okay so for me that the imposter syndrome came from the fact that i grew up idolizing drum teachers so i became a private drum instructor i did the touring thing and the recording thing so that i could have those experiences and i definitely had the imposter syndrome in the studio as soon as i put on the headphones I was like, I, Josh Freeze should be doing this album. I shouldn't be doing this. I, I don't feel adequate enough to be here. Um, but then, but the teaching thing was something I always wanted to do. But there was a progression of the people I idolized. That progression was if you were being taught by Pete Magadini, which I was, he could tell you his time with Diana Ross. He could tell you about his gig tour, or I mean, his jazz tours in Canada. Yeah. Then he wrote a book, and it was published by a real company. So there was this huge progression that took like forty years to become the teacher. Well, mine didn't work that way. All of a sudden, this thing called YouTube came out, and then I was world known as an educator. But it to me, I skipped like forty steps, and I wasn't okay with that, and I felt really kind of like, man, I don't deserve this recognition. I didn't I, I, I didn't go through the process that Pete went through, that Jim Chapin went through, that even somebody like Don Famularo went through. And so and at the same time, because of social media, I was also getting all the negative backlash yeah. from the old school East Coast guys that are like, who the hell are you? You're a punk. You know, mm -hmm. and, and it was just like, whoa. And and I mean a part of me was like, maybe you're right. But then I realized what got me through it, Tyler, is that I thought whether I'm good or bad, I love teaching more than anyone I've ever met in my life. 
so who cares? You yeah. know, as long as I'm proud of the work and as long as the work's always improving, and even if it's only reaching two or three people, who that's fine. You know, so but yeah, I definitely dealt with some of that imposter syndrome in the beginning, and then when I finally accepted myself as an educator, and I thought, of course, I can always get better. But at least I know that I'm, 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 I care about explaining and I practice explaining things. Then I had the imposter syndrome with the drumming. You know, right. I went out with JP and Matt for our first Common Thread clinic tour and realized you guys are drummers and I'm a teacher that plays drums. So kind of like what Mike said, it's fight or flight. So it's like, well, I either complain and bitch and moan about this or I spend the next two years dedicating myself to the drum set the way that I have to teaching. And Around the time of the London Drum Show, I felt like I'm a professional drummer and I'm proud of myself. I'm yeah. not better or worse than anybody. I just, but I'm proud of my drumming. So I think it's just yeah. about buckling down and working your butt off. I think it's crucial too, especially in art, because I don't think there's any. You could probably go down the line if you talk to successful artists. They all doubt their work. They all question it. Right. But it's that doubt that then fuels them to not, not allow themselves to suck. You know, because if you do your first drawing and it's terrible, you can either say, all right, I'm never going to be an artist. Or you can say, well, let me do that again. You, right. can, you can try to play an Afro-Cuban groove and it sounds like crap. You can say, well, I'll never understand Afro-Cuban music. Let me just throw my sticks away. Or you can say, screw that. I know that a human being can do this. So I'm going to spend the next 10 years researching, studying, taking lessons, getting to the point when it becomes my second nature. And I think for me, I would... I would on one side I would trade this fear that I grew up with for anything just to have the confidence to go through life just with no fear. Right. But I don't think I would have been a per, as as much of a perfectionist. I don't think God, I would have been. Can you imagine I'm, can you imagine how lazy you'd be without the fear? Yeah, exactly. I mean it's it's such a driving force. And I I, I wanna like kind of come back to something you said about, you know, man, you feel weird you feel like you're not worthy writing. So what does it feel like when something that you were so scared of and and had so much fear over and such an imposter syndrome over, what does it feel like when people start coming to you for advice on that exact topic? Like, I mean, I hired you to write the press release for the Groove Freedom app. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's like that's the thing you used to be the most afraid of and now people are paying you for it and people are asking you for your advice. You've become an authority on your fear. That's a pretty amazing thing. For me, it's – it's I, I – I'm I, I'm obsessive, so I know that I've taken it as far as I possibly can at the moment. So whatever effort I'm going to give you is going to be 100%. And if you like that, cool. If you don't like that, that's fine too. But so yeah, the writing process for me is is really painful. I'll, I'll admit it's it is torture. Like for me to like I have three product reviews I need to get done today or tomorrow, and it's like it's making me sweat just thinking about it. It's <laughs> painful. You know, but it, I think, wow. but, but when you get to the other side of it, when you finally hit that last period and sign your name and then you read through it and you're like, okay, that, that sort of sucks. Let me fix a couple things. And then you read through it again after you edit it and you're like, that's it. And you can read it 10 times in a row and you don't hate it. That is when you're yeah. like, ah, let me go get a coffee and actually smile. And <laughs> right. know, like I did something, <laughs> I achieved something that doesn't suck. It happens every yeah. single time. And I, I take certain solace in it because I remember reading that. If you read about the life of Mozart versus the life of Beethoven, Mozart was just virtuosic. He could just compose and instantly and play everything perfectly. And, and, you know, he led a great life. But Beethoven is the one that we all actually remember. And he hated everything he ever did. It was like gut-wrenching for him to do a single note of composition. Yes, wow. he was a virtuoso musician. But when it came down to actually writing, it was like it was torture for him. 
So I take a little bit of solace in thinking that the most important composer of of the modern era hated all of his work. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Well, if if that guy hated his work, then I should hate my hundred word CD review. I should really Uh, hate it. Absolutely. I I remember when I first started getting some sort of recognition and and the business was starting to grow and I started becoming friends with my idols, I was shocked at how many of them at some point told me they would just call me on the phone and be like, Hey, I I think I'm I'm about to just kinda stop the whole drumming thing. It's just I just kinda suck and I'm never happy. (laughs) And I'm like, dude, I stood in line for an hour to get your autograph at NAM two years ago. What are you talking about? You're gonna quit? Like and then it was awesome because I'm like, wait, if you feel that way, then it's totally okay that I, you know, that I'm still thinking, why can I not keep the distance between two eighth notes the same over yeah. the course of one measure? Yeah. Um, and so, so yeah, so Tyler, we all go through it, buddy. Uh, just know that it's really about gaining strength from going through it. As you feel like an imposter, an imposter, create a situation that allows you to overcome it. You know, and. And whatever you don't feel like an imposter of, maybe maybe you feel like, no, I don't feel like an imposter of groove. My groove is fantastic. But I sure as hell am an imposter of fills. And then, so you'll just move it to something else. Yeah, you know. Yeah. But it, it always feels great when somebody compliments something that you had the biggest fear over. When people compliment my ability to talk on a microphone on stage, it, it's, it's very flattering. But it doesn't mean as much to me because I honestly feel like I'm not terrible at it. I feel like, you know. I, I, I don't get scared about that. Yeah. But when somebody says, man, you're drumming – Dana Bentley, he was like, man, every I can't believe how much your drumming's grown since the last time I saw you. I could have just died right there. I was like, you yeah. noticed my drum? No one notices my drumming. They only notice my explanations of the drumming. And I was like, ah, oh, Dana, like, bro, I'll pay for dinner tonight. That felt <laughs> so good. Like, thank you. Like, that means the work paid off. And then, and then all of a sudden, the new imposter syndrome comes in of like, oh, now I have to earn that because yeah. what if he's, what if I tricked him? Yeah. You know, it, it never ends. It never ends. But I think, I think like what Mike said, Tyler, is it can be a positive thing and it can fuel you moving forward. So awesome. Well, guys, you can always send us your questions. We love that stuff. We love getting to your questions. And maybe one day we'll just have to do a full question episode because we have so many starting to come in now. And uh, yeah. so, and Mike, where can they get their questions to us? Yeah, mdinfo at moderndrummer.com, or you can comment on the Facebook page below the latest podcast post, uh, Twitter, anywhere anywhere that's a Modern Drummer associated uh, product, you can get a hold of us. But mdinfo at moderndrummer.com is probably the most direct. Sweet. Go straight to LaShonda. Exactly. All right. So let's move into a little shop talk. We'll make this as quick as possible because this could definitely take up a full episode. But I wanted to talk to Mike about drum depths and you know toms snares kick we all know that there's kind of the standard sizes for the diameter of the drum so you have maybe a 10 inch tom or a 12 inch tom as your first tom and then your floor tom is either a 14 or a 16 and in some cases maybe a 15 or an 18 but that's kind of standardized but the drum depth is always something that's confusing to somebody buying their first drum set or maybe buying their first custom kit how shallow should you go is it to me, I, I know that there's definitely a fad at times where it's like, wow, power toms are in. I'm going to get deep toms. But you don't know why you're getting them. They just look as deep as your favorite drummer. And then all of a sudden, fast toms are in. And, and wow, the Toma Hyperdrive comes with these fast toms. I don't even have to custom order them. Maybe I should get them. But do you really know what they're doing to the sound? So let's start off with snares. Since you and I play kind of different depths of snares, I'm more of a 14 by 5, 14 by 5.5 at the most guy. I actually don't even own a single 6.5 inch deep snare, and you love the depth. So yeah. what does the depth give you? 
Uh, for me, it, it gives me just more tone, more sound. Um, okay. I feel like the shallower you go, the more it just becomes a snare sound. Like you're, you're yes. really just hearing the snares with a little bit of tone. But when you go deeper, that's when you can kind of control the, the body of the sound more. Um, so, I mean, I have as big as 8x14s and as shallow as 3x13s. And for me, I'd, six and a half is kind of like the perfect size because I can tune it lower and get like the rock and roll sound. Or I can also right. tune it up and tighten the snares and get a, a really good bebop sound. Bill Stewart uses a six and a half by fourteen. Oh, really? Uh, Brian Blade has used a six and a half by fourteen a lot of times. So that size to me is kind of universal. Whereas a five by fourteen, if I'm playing like really loud music, it's going to bottom out. It's Absolutely, not gonna, it's not going to give me the power. So, and I, these days I tend to play a little bit more on the on the louder side. If I was playing more jazz. Uh, as I was 10, 15 years ago, I would just use a five and a half more often. So it's for me, it's more volume versus versus versatility. So six and a yeah. half is kind of the, the golden size to be able to do hard rock, heavy metal, and bebop. Right. And I, I think drummers need to understand too, like if you listen to a six and a half all by itself, which we can do right now, you hear nothing. That's what a six and a half does by itself. And what I mean by that is you control the volume. So you can play a six and a half as quiet as you want. It's not that it's a loud drum. I think what Mike's saying is it has a higher ceiling for volume. So where at some point a five or a five and a half is going to cap out and you just it just kind of starts choking itself when you hit it harder and harder. A six and a half is going to have a little more ceiling for you. So I think really, I mean, for me, the reason why I play a five and a half snare is because I've found my sound and my sound is kind of it's it's always i'm always teaching and it's just my thing but if i was gigging a lot and the and i wanted the most versatile sound i'd probably go with a six and a half just because it gives me a little more versatility yeah um so but i think what mike said was great if you're wondering what the difference in depth is the closer that bottom head gets to the top head the more you're hearing the snappiness of the snares and it eventually once you get into that like he said, a three by thirteen. Then it's it's just all snap and it's all stick articulation and definition. And you're not really getting any body of the drum. So now, what about toms? Do you what like what's your twelve? Are you a twelve by seven, twelve by eight, twelve by nine? I I go with the classic standards: eight by twelve, nine by thirteen, um, eight by ten. If I use a ten, uh, right. Floor toms, I tend to just go square dimensions, 14, square. 14, 16, yeah. 16. Although I do have some shallower floor toms that, that actually I think are a better mix. But uh, in general, I think that those sizes have been tested for half a century, and they just There's sound good. The, the shallower yeah. ones, to me, just they, they start to sound like toys. Um, they're just so quick, and they're just not you – just, you can't get like a big dramatic sound out of like a, a 6 by 13 tom. You just can't. You're just going right, to hear like totally. the heads kind of yeah. boing and get out of there. And the yeah. same thing with like super deep toms. You're going to have to hit them so hard to get that bottom head to really contribute to the sound. Yeah. Like I think just go with in just go with traditional sizes. I, I, there's no reason unless you're using it. You're a short person and you need to get your toms really low. Sure. Or you're using a huge bass drum and you just need to get the toms lower. Then yeah. maybe go a little shallower. But I don't have any need to go beyond the classic depths. I agree. Yeah, I think especially when it comes to the floor toms, you know, I have a lot of 14 by 14s, a lot of square floor toms and 16 by 16s. And then I have some mounted ones. So where maybe my 16 inch floor tom has a 14 inch depth. And to me, when you bring that head up at that level, you actually get too much resonance. Like the, the, the bottom head just won't shut up. 
So I end up gaff taping the whole bottom head, you know, or putting a couple pieces of gaff on the bottom. Where with a 14 by 14 or a 16 by 16, I just don't have to do that. It just has this big fat sound and with a great, perfect decay. No need. I've never taken a square floor tom to a, a gig and then had the sound guy have to put a gate on it. But with my mounted floor toms, I have. He's like, can you shut that floor mm. tom up? I'm like, no. <laughs> Bro, I've got I've – got, like, you know, I mean, unless I stick something inside the drum, but I mean, no, I, it, it's just going to go all day. So I think square sizes are, are great on floor toms. And then, yeah, the traditional, I'm using a 8 by 12 rack. Um, I, I think that's perfect. Now, kick drum, same thing. I mean, if you want low end, you got to get that resonant head a little bit closer than where we kind of went in the late 90s and early 2000s, where we started getting these really, really deep bass drums. They look cool on stage, but your sound never makes it to the resonant head. And the resonant head is where you're providing all of that boom and all of that low low end. So what's your favorite bass drum size? Uh, for all purpose, it would be a 14 by 22. Yeah, absolutely. It's not yeah. my favorite sound, but that's like that will work in everything. I, I really 14 inch depth is kind of it for me. Maybe 16. Yeah. Uh, I, I have an 18 by 22, but I end up putting a pillow in it anyway, so that front head doesn't really do much to the totally. sound. Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't the super deep ones. I'm sure we've talked about it before, but I end up just wearing myself out just trying to get the drum to because if if you don't hit it hard, all you're hearing is that batter head. You're not hearing. Yeah. You're not getting the front head involved. So you've got to you've got to really kick the crap out of it. If you're going twenty by twenty two, forget about it. Yeah, and then it takes all of the dynamic nature out of your own playing because yeah, it's it, you're getting such a horrible tone when you feather the kick or when you play lightly that you you start training yourself to play monotone and very loud. You yeah. know, I have my my size for quite a while now has been a fourteen deep uh, twenty inch bass drum. And I just love the fact that I can be very dynamic with it, and the tone is still present, whether I play it quiet or loud. Um, it just it, it it's more like a drum, you know. Uh, it's more like playing my floor toms. I can really get some dynamic nature out of it. So yeah, definitely, guys. For for all of you at home, check you know really kind of start to look into the depth of your drums and think why why do you have the depth you have and what is it providing? And you should be able to answer that question. Like somebody should say, why do you play a twelve? Uh, inch diameter tom that's 10 inches deep and you should know that answer rather than be like i don't know just came with my kit right you know (laughs) and you should say well i I hit the hell out of my drums and it it, you know and it just gives me if i hit it hard enough i get this really cool tone it's like okay well that's fine as long as you have a reason for it so um so very cool all right well let's move into some educational sauce so in the march issue of modern drummer i wrote uh part two of my hidden rhythms article So it's called Hidden Rhythms Part 2. So the goal here was to get you guys to understand that inside of one measure of 16th notes, there are a lot of hidden rhythms. And in the first part, in Hidden Rhythms Part 1, we we explored the claves and the cascaras and all of the world rhythms that were stuck inside of this one measure of 16th notes. But I wanted to make sure that especially the younger drummers, and by young I don't mean how old you are, I mean how long you've played. Anyone that's been playing for less than three or four years – I want you to understand that 16th notes, 1E and a 2E and a 3E and a 4E and a, don't have to be felt as 1, 2, 3, 4, 1, 2, 3, 4. They don't have to be felt as groups of four. They can be felt as 1, 2, 3, 1, 2, 3, 1, 2, 3. And you can still keep counting 1E and a 2E and a 3E and a 4E and a 1E and a. So you can feel these groupings, groups of threes, groups of fives, groups of sevens, a group of three followed by a group of four. And so it was kind of just getting people to understand that groupings are not subdivisions. Groupings are how you group the notes inside the subdivision. The subdivision is the rate of speed in which you play in accordance to the pulse. And so 
getting away from that one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, and start feeling it maybe as one, two, three, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, five, and you still come out on the downbeat of one. Any combination, if you're in 16th notes and you're in four, four time, any combination of two groupings of three and two groupings of five will get you out of the downbeat. That, that gives you 16 total notes. So if I have maybe three, five, five, three, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, one, two, three, four. One, two, three, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, on. So that's what's hidden inside of your basic kind of measure of 16th notes. And I'll talk about in a little bit how you can move this concept forward and do some really cool things with it. But before we do, Mike, when did or did you have a moment in your drumming where groupings kind of showed up and you realized, wow, there's all these little little groupings of notes inside the subdivisions I'm already playing? It was pro- yeah, it was. You know what it was? Actually, I just watched it last night. Steve Smith's. Uh, video from like the early 90s he had two two videos mm-hmm. and the first one kind of dealt with fundamental stuff how to play his approach to jazz and rock the second video is when he gets into this stuff so right from the first minute of the video he's talking about uh, superimposing five over four so groupings of five okay and playing a yep. groove using that so i mean i got that video probably when i was 15 i guess so instantly it was like, okay, I don't know what he's doing. He was playing a Steps Ahead song that just sounded really strange because the groove was this constant five-note grouping that goes over 4-4. Four, okay. four. So I just started practicing it. I didn't know why. I didn't know what the point of it was. <laughs> but I knew it was cool, so I just started practicing it. So it was, it was kind of early on that this whole idea of, of making you hear one thing when it's actually something else. I, I was always you know optical illusions always fascinate me so auditory you know auditory illusions fascinate me i always liked hearing stuff that just completely confused me and then eventually i could figure out what was going on right there's actually some stuff that i just purposefully just i don't want to know what they're doing because it's so fascinating to me to be just completely dumbfounded like some of don't yeah you don't want to lose the magic yeah some of that stuff off dave weckl's first record master plan i have no idea what he's doing but it sounds cool so right. let's just leave it at that. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm with you, man. I'm with you. I, I but, there's you know. very there's a lot of things, especially the things that I fell in love with as a child. Like old old Genesis stuff where I'm like, it would take me three minutes to figure it out and I will never ever spend those three minutes because I don't want to lose the magic. I yeah. love that I don't know what's happening. Yeah, I don't wanna I don't wanna be able to like every time it comes up follow along perfectly. Which also yeah. brought up a question I was gonna ask you about this article, because when we teach groupings we almost always start on the downbeat. Yeah. It wasn't until I got into grad school that I started realizing that a lot of the what makes this stuff really when you start improvising is when you don't start those groupings on the downbeat. You start it on the E of beat Absolutely. one or on beat four yep. or something like that. So what part of the teaching yeah. phase do you try to get people out of this block thinking of downbeat to downbeat? Yeah, I, I think where it starts for me is what I do with them is they have to start going over the bar line and making a four bar phrase of it. And that will end up hitting everything. So if I'm always allowing them to round it off at the end, say four groups of three, one group of four to get one E and a two E and a three E and a four E and a one E and a two, then they're always going to get used to that. But if I make them stay with those threes in a four bar phrase of one E and a two E and a three E and a four E and a one E and a two E and a three E and a four E and a one E and a two E and a three E and a four E and a and now after three bars they're back to the downbeat of one. They've hit every possible combination, and then I can say, okay, I want you to play those groups of threes. You're gonna start on the E one two three four one E and a two E and a three E and a four E and a boom. And then they're like, oh, I came out on the one. It's like, yeah, that's that's fantastic, you know. Or maybe groups of five starting on the E. 
And then what I encourage them to do is I'll say, okay, now I'm going to give you the option of threes, fives, and sevens, but I need you to play a four-bar phrase. So I don't know where it's going to – I don't want you to do three, three, five, five, seven, three, three, three. It's like just play. And But you need to keep track of time. You yeah. know? And that's tough. You're constantly going over the bar line. But if you can learn how to count and you can feel that one, two, three, four, one E and a two E and a three E and a four E and a one E and a two E and a three E and a four E and a one E and a two E and a three E and a four E and a one E and a two E and a three E and a four E and a boom. And it's like, oh, cool. I did a four bar phrase with all odd groupings. I never hit the one. You know, I just kept going over the bar line, but I still got out of it. But if you if you just go, oh, I'm totally lost. Yeah. You know, you're like, I have no idea where I am. And so that's why when people say, yeah, I don't, I don't count. And it's like, well, cool. Yeah. Good luck coming in on the one if you're playing some advanced stuff. I mean, even when I'm playing odd time signatures, I, I maybe the song I'm not counting, but when they say, okay, you're going to solo. Oh my God. I'm shouting one, two, three, four, five, yeah, six, yeah. seven. I sound like Chris Coleman's metronome, you know? So, I mean, that's a huge part of it, but, you're right. Once people start realizing, so I could just start this on the E or the and or the uh, yeah. and it's like, yeah, it's a whole, now it's a whole new world. And then I think you're kind of into that world of odd groupings. And that's what this thing was about. And, and I would just say for anyone that's wanting to take this further, the next concept is three equals. So what that means is, okay, we've decided you're going to do three, three, five, five. But what is your three? Is your three right, left kick? Is it right, left kick and accenting the left and ghosting the right? Uh, is it flam, kick, left? You know, three could be anything. So once you start then coming up with three equals what, then you plug it into this math system and you, I mean, God, it's endless. And that's yeah. when people are ever reference my improvisational drumming in a clinic. It's very rare that they're referencing some sort of lick. They're usually whatever they're saying. Hey, what was that stuff there? It's like it was always odd groupings over a pulse, and yeah. I was just changing what the three was. What the you know is it the Tony Williams flam three bladuga bladuga bladuga? You know, um, I mean, hell, a, a traditional bludge is still three sixteenth notes long. So right, right, um, right. You know, so yeah. So I, to me, and even that's one of the things I'll be teaching in the camp uh, in New York this week is. We'll just have a whiteboard, and I'll say, okay, we've decided that 33334 equals 16 notes. What is our three and what is our four? Let's create 20 different licks with the same phrasing, but the three you know, could be flam, kick, kick. Well, that's going to be a very Foo Fighters-ish fill to go blackakoo, 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 blackakoo. Way different than doing the Tony Williams, blooding, 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 dang, getcha, getcha. Oh, so. Cool. You know, there's, there's something else that – that I just started to scratch the surface on with this stuff. And it, it was stemmed from a Miles Davis quote where he told, I can't remember what drummer it was. It might've been Jimmy, Jimmy, uh, Jimmy Cobb. Cobb. He told him to like, never finish anything, never finish a phrase. Like if you, oh, wow. if you get to the end of a phrase and you want to finish it, just keep going. So that, I think that was wow. in, might've been in his autobiography. So that got me, and, and this was a time like the late nineties when Brian Blade was just on every record and he always extends his phrases beyond the resolution points. And Jeff Watts is the same way. And, and then you start hearing it in like Aaron Spears and more contemporary styles where they just go, they blow right past the downbeat. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And keep going. So what I started messing around with this stuff is when you do these odd groupings, instead of adding a resolution, adding a four at the end, just take it all the way and then end, let it end naturally in bar five, wherever that might land. Right. And then sure. can you come back in on the groove at the right spot? 
So, and that, yeah, that's what I was talking about with keeping track of time. Is is you know, I think it's much cooler to go over the bar line. And as long as you know, and there's simple mathematical principles behind this. If you're playing groups of whatever your grouping is, that's how many bars it will take to resolve in four four. So if your grouping is three, it'll take three bars of four four until you hit the downbeat of one again. If you're playing groupings of five, it'll take five. Um, seven, it'll take seven. So there's simple math behind it that you'll start to figure out on your own without anybody teaching it to you. And then, like what Mike was saying is, okay, well, let's go over the bar line. And it may be a great exercise for you and me, Mike, and our students out there would be, why don't we decide where the phrase ends and figure out how to make that happen? So, meaning that, okay, I'm going to start this fill in a, in a bar, and I'm going to resolve on the downbeat of two of the next bar. So mm-hmm. that you're going past the bar line, you're going to crash on with your snare, but you're playing these threes that lead up to it. And how are you going to make that happen? Because I think that's almost more of that was my approach in the jazz world when I was playing big band is I have to play this setup lick and we come down on the end of two, you know, mm-hmm. and the whole band goes, bah, and I have to nail that. Well, I have to fill into that. I can't just like randomly hit a crash and scare the crap out of everybody. I have to set that thing up. So I, I think those types of things are very important. I mean, a lot of times I'll just write on my whiteboard, you know, the uh of three. And it's like, okay, that's where I'm going to crash after this fill. So I'm going to oh, okay. have to go over the bar line for beats one, two, and then three E and are all fill as well. And then I have to crash on the uh of three. And I think, Okay, it's going to work really good with my left hand if I'm playing kind of hand-to-hand stuff. And uh-huh. So, yeah. It, all right. Well, cool. So hopefully you guys have stuff to practice. Mike yeah. and I have stuff to practice. Me too. And, uh, yeah. All right. Let's move into our featured artist. This is the artist that is on the cover of the March issue of Modern Drummer. Hopefully you guys all have that right now. And that would be Mr. Barry Kirch. He is the drummer for Shine Down. And I was listening to Shine Down's new album, Mike, today, and I was literally laughing at – that is the other option that my career had. I yeah. would literally be in Shine Down right now. Yeah, like yeah. thinking of where I went from my rock thing, it's like, okay, that's just the modern, I guess that's where we are right now. But yeah. those guys had to have been in the band that I was in. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I was like, wow, this could be me. This is what I, this is the other option I had. So, uh, the, and, and I was really excited on the new album. Let me pull it up because I was listening to it today uh, Threat to Survival. I was hearing a little bit of uh, – there was like actual symphonic instruments in there. I don't know if they're real. I hope yeah. they are. But uh, there was a little bit of uh, – you know, my favorite band in the world is uh, Silverchair. And they oh, had wow. an album called – and not not the kids, <laughs> not the kids that played grunge. It starts at Diorama. So start with that album. It's one of the – it was produced by the guy that did uh, Pet Sounds for the Beach Boys. Oh, no kidding. So it's one of the greatest albums. There's no producer on the planet that wouldn't say that – that is one of the greatest albums ever recorded. So that's where my love for them starts. It doesn't start with Frog Stomp or whatever oh, okay. the hell they did when they were right. opening that's for Pearl Jam. That's the one I know. Yeah. Oh, I, I will send you that. You will freak. It's one. Of, it's incredible. I mean, full, full on ensemble. We should talk about Barry Kirch. But <laughs> you get me started on Silverchair, and I'll go off for an hour. Anyways, um, but as soon as I heard the first track of the new album from Shinedown, I was like, oh, I love when they bring symphonic instruments to back up a rock band. I just think yeah. it's such a cool mix, man. Um, so now, did you get a chance to interview him, or who did this article? I didn't do it. It was actually one of my uh, – Ben Meyer, who I, I grew up with, Ben. Uh, he and I okay. were drummer buddies when we were teenagers and went to college together and everything. So he, he does some freelance writing for us, and he is in South Carolina, which it happens to be where Barry was at either recording or that's where he's from. I'm not sure. So he was able to just drive okay. down and hang out with him for a day. Um, oh, cool. Yeah, so he did the story, and I mean, really, the whole point of the story is just kind of 
digging into what's it like to be the guy in a huge rock band and it's kind of the exact opposite of what you'd expect you kind of expect a little bit of them being pretentious and thinking that they're guys gift to rock and roll but right these are guys are just working i mean they're working hard yeah. they've they've and they're very blue collar and and barry is is a, a perennial student of the drums like he you could just be like, all right, I'm, I'm a rock star, I'm cool. But no, he's learned. he took lessons with Don Familaro to get his technique better, and he studies other styles of music. And and so for me, the whole point of the story was you know, that, that it's not impossible for just normal people to be hugely successful and, and good people. Yeah. You can be a rock star and be a good person. You don't have to be, you know, the, the, you know, to be a tabloid star to be in a rock band. Right. We're also in a good period for rock as far as you can't be a rock star without being a hard worker anymore. It just we, – yeah. we, we've left that era behind. The labels won't do all the work for you. You can't become successful just because of some promotional campaign. It, it's, it, it comes down to the music and the fact that you stuck around after the show to shake people's hands and they got to look in your eyes and like, wow, the drummer's really cool. And it also probably helps that he has his bachelor's degree in anthropology. That's not right. bad. So yeah. way to go, Barry. <laughs> way to stick it out, pal. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, what they're doing right now is carrying on that thing where, you know, I think it was Dave Grohl that said, hey, we played the MTV Music Awards this year and we were the only rock band on it. And I think the only reason we were even on it was because they were we were the only rock band that the MTV knew existed. Yeah, yeah, and that's like, scary. Exactly. And so, you know, bands like Shinedown and Food and Fighters, like we still need rock bands because we'll always, I think we'll always have metal bands. I think metal will always progress and be experimental and it'll always be consumed not by the masses. It'll have its core fan base that's always looking for the new era of metal. So I'm not worried about us losing that because I also think it's a way for musicians to push themselves as far as they can in an idiom other than jazz. Yeah. But but classic straight up rock and roll, that sometimes is is tough to find, man. Yeah, well it's 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 not easy to put on a sh- a rock and roll show. You know, you can't, yeah. you have to, it's, it's not easy to make a rock and roll band sound huge. I mean, a pop band, you just pump some tracks, you got a bunch of sequences, and electronic drums, and that's going to sound amazing to a huge system. But right. rock band, you've got nasty, ugly guitars, you've got big, boomy <laughs> drums, you've got singers who are sometimes screaming, you know, it, yeah. it can be a tough mix just as a, an audio engineer to make yeah. that like a show. So I think, I think we're kind of an era of everyone just wants music to sound clean and imprecise and and mm-hmm. for me that's rock and roll is the opposite of that it needs to be gritty and human yeah yeah i, I don't i don't want to see my favorite rock band playing to a click no it's like yeah. hey if, if there's energy in the room and you're you're playing 15 bpm over the it's like cool man you know yep. and i and i love that like you said like all right well the singer just was screaming for a full song and i know that they're about to hit their their power ballad let's see how he does on this one you know and um and i know that there's no fake vocal tracks backing him up where you know i I went to see taylor swift with my wife and uh she brought me it wasn't like my choice but (laughs) i still went and and anytime i can go to something like that i just i flip the script in my head it's like okay i'm going to observe something amazing and i'm going to try to just soak it in but i honestly from where i was sitting i don't know if there were tracks like for her vocals i I don't know if she was singing like if she was fantastic and i hope she was but i don't really know but when i'm in a you know a 300 capacity 
club watching a rock band, I'm not wondering if there's vocal tracks backing the guy up. Yeah, it's almost up, the worst know? if there are. I mean, there's. I'm kind of in that that rock world that, and some bands kind of bring in their Pro Tools rigs, and it's just like, dude, why? Why are you doing that? Yeah. Everyone's got their in-ear monitor mixes, and they're clearly playing along to sequences. I mean, if you need to do that for effect, cool. If you're doing it just to make yourself sound professional, I'm like, ah. Uh-uh. Yeah, learn, no, how to, learn how to play, make some mistakes, learn how to adjust on the fly when you when you drop a beat or something. Honestly, the the, the best quote I can give you is learn how to rock. Right. I mean, that's <laughs> really what it is. Just rock. You know, I, I remember sitting at Chino Moreno's house, uh, singer from the Deftones, when they played. I think I've said this on the podcast before, but they played the um, it was the Jay Leno show at the time. So you do that during the day. They flew back to Sacramento so we could watch it at night um, and have a little party at their house. And I'm sitting there with Abe Cunningham and Chino, and uh, and Steph was still in the band, and uh, not Steph, sorry, um, Chi was still in, uh, still fine. Anyways, and we watched them perform. And I think they did uh, uh, "Change in the House of Flies," and I thought it was pretty terrible. It, Chino was all over the map singing wise. Uh, yeah. The tempo was kind of up and down. And they could not have been happier. They were high-fiving when it was over. <laughs> and the only reason is because they rocked. Yeah. Chino does not care about perfection. Abe didn't care about tempo. It was like, dude, we freaking rocked the Leno show. We probably <laughs> scared Jay. And they were so happy at how hard they rocked. And I was like, wow, man, I need to get my head out of my school band ass and realize what it's because at this time i was still touring with simon says and i was like i gotta remember what it's like to just rock for the sake of rocking so i think bands like shine down foo fighters they really help us out with that stuff so that's good stuff so any now have you ever met barry no i I think he was at nam but i mean i didn't get to see anybody at nam so i I missed him but he seems like a really really nice guy very grateful so and do you know do you know what drums he's playing i have it saying that he's playing d drums but i don't know if he's still currently a d drum he's a pro artist Oh my God! My phone was the ringer was on. That is such a huge party foul. My bad, dog. No, he's a pearl artist. They actually had pearl. his kit at Nam. Okay, cool. Yeah. Very cool. Well, if you get a chance to see Shine Down or Barry come through, uh, go go check it out. All right, let's get into some gear review. Let's get into the candy of our episode. So you are you checked out the Sabian HH Remastered series, correct? Yeah. So Sabian again. This kind of goes back to the acquisition of Crescent, which Crescent is. It was originally a handmade Turkish symbol company. They were they were all done the old world way. I mean, allegedly, we don't really know, but they were they were supposedly handmade in Turkey. So when Sabian bought the you know bought the brand, they was like, why don't we incorporate some of this stuff back into what we do? So they did the big and ugly stuff last year. Right, that yep. was like their you know bringing back the traditional style of making symbols. So they took that whole approach of just having dudes sitting on anvils and whacking snot out of pies of metal. Right, uh, redoing redoing the HH series. I'm not sure exactly what the HH series processing was prior to this, but now they're supposedly hit by a, a human with a hammer, just like the old world way. So now, didn't hasn't HH always stood for hand hammered by Sabian? It, it has. So, like I said, I don't know what that means. They were doing. <laughs> If maybe it was machine hammering. I don't, we, I'm sure. Right. I'm sure we could ask. I don't. I don't want to get myself sure. or, or you or anyone in any kind of trouble, but. Yeah, HH originally stood for hand hammered. So they okay. originally did the symbol. Actually, the original series was called hand hammered. If you remember, right? I remember. Old. Yeah, I yeah. was the store I worked at. We were a Sabian dealer, and I remember when we went from AAX and the AAs, and then all of a sudden these new HHs came out, and it was hand hammered, yeah. and it was, and they were very, they were beautiful symbols. Yeah. So apparently, that's the original symbol that Sabian launched with was the hand hammered. It wasn't an HH. It was just called hand hammered. 
So they, they brought all that, you know, revived that approach. So less okay. less machinery, more human. So like at NAM, they have a guy demonstrating the hammering process. You can hear him from the uh, high yes. din of the hammering from around yes. the hall. <laughs> so they, they, you know, so what that's doing is, is making the HH more expressive, you know, a little, okay. a little more complex. But they're still kind of clean, classic Sabian sounding cymbals. So they're not... They're not trashy. They're not funky. They're they're still clean, but they're a little bit more broken in per se. And they're and they're high end symbols. I mean, these are all B twenty bronze symbols. So yeah, um, these are not like you know cheap symbols by any means. Yeah, these they, are good professional level symbols. They did a really good video campaign down in Nashville with Chris McHugh, Nearzy, and Nick uh, Buda. Okay, so they they all three went into the studio and just played the symbols, and then they interviewed about them. So if you want, that's all on YouTube, Sabian's channel. You can hear them in action there. Really good stuff. And and Nier had a good way of explaining it, that these are just symbols. Like some everyone just needs a set of symbols, and these are yeah. his set of just, they can work in rock and roll, they can work in country, they can work in anything. And I, which ones did you get to review? What did I check out? I checked out they have a, the... Because they have the full lineup. I mean, like, they have like 40 symbols in this line. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 the complete lineup. So they just sent, like, a batch. I had the uh, 14-inch accelerator hi-hats, which are... They have, like... I think they have, like, a, like the crimped bottom side. They call it Airwave. Okay. Yep, so yep. They, they were super crispy. Not, not actually my favorite hi-hat sound, but they were super crispy if you're into that kind of a dark but really articulate uh, hi-hat sound. The crashes, the 16 and 18-inch crashes, were just... Really nice crashes. All Sounded covers. like crash symbols. Yeah. They sent a 22-inch thin, which I didn't know if it was a crash or a ride, but it worked I, I heard that thing. It's a it's a washy little ride, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's actually a crash. Okay. So, But what, either way, it works It works well in both. I mean, if you need a humongous crash symbol, it, it does that well. It also worked as a, as a light kind of jazzy ride. Uh, they sent you know, their 16, 18-inch Ozones, which seems like everybody uses those things. Right. The ones that have the big holes in them. Yeah. Uh, I don't tend to prefer that sound. It's a little too trashy for me. I'd rather just go with a like a thinner cymbal. Trashy crash. Yeah. Yeah. But they were nice. And then the rides the twenty two inch medium ride was a really good kind of clean, all purpose ride cymbal. I like cool. that a lot. The Raw Bell ride was sounded like a Steve Ferroni, like that kind yeah. of sound. Uh, then they sent a vintage ride, twenty one inch, which is again like a thin, jazzy sound. So it's a I fully, heard that one. That was nice. That's a good one. So I, yeah. I like the 21-inch vintage ride the best. That was my choice of the whole yeah. series. But the most kind of quintessential Sabian for me was the Raw Bell Dry Ride. Just had that. Okay. It sounded like uh, Tom, Tom Petty Wildflowers or something like that. Nice. Yeah, I, I was checking out the whole lineup. And uh, the one that I was like, man, that's a really cool ride, very representative of what I was what, what influenced the, the transition ride was the uh, 20-inch Leopard ride. Right. Um, there was some really cool characteristics in that. And, uh, and I'm happy that you know companies like Sabian are starting to realize, like, hey, it's not enough to see a picture or to hear this stuff. you got to get video up there. I need to see it being played in a setting. Um, so there's on their site, if you just go to uh, Sabian.com, www.sabian.com, and just find the HH series, you'll find most of their symbols they have video and audio for. Now, real quick, I do have a question. Uh, do you know what the difference is between HH and HHX? Because they sell both lines, and I don't know what I, no, the difference I'm, is. I think it's just sort of similar to the uh, Zildjian K versus K Custom. Like it's the, okay. it's a more modern sound. 
Okay. And maybe yeah, it looks like they have a lot more polished symbols in that. Yeah. Um, by the way, heads up for anyone that doesn't know this about symbols, but polish does not make them brighter. It makes them darker. It's adding a layer of material to that symbol. So just it's a visual trick. You're going to think like, oh, these are so bright and shiny. And it's like, no, they're not. <laughs> they are a little bit darker, just so you know. But um, okay. Um, and maybe that's something we can explore further. But awesome. Well, let's uh, let's give these things a listen. First up, you're hearing the 22-inch HH Medium Ride. This is the 21-inch Vintage Ride. Lastly, this is the 21-inch Rawbell Dry Ride. You can hear the rest of the series that we reviewed. If you go to moderndrummer.com, there's a demo video there. All right, time for the pick of the week, and I'm going to choose a variation of something I think I picked early on in, in the show. I talked about the TuneBot being my pick of the week, and yep. they uh, they just recently, I mean, it was last year, they put out the TuneBot Gig, which is like a silver, it looks just like a TuneBot, but it has a silver casing. I think, oh, it, yeah, I have it. I think it's about half the price. Yeah, uh, and yeah. They, what they did was they just took a lot of the features out of the TuneBot that that were kind of unnecessary. They're nice but unnecessary, like the save feature and that kind of stuff. And they put it all. And they just got rid of all that. And on one screen, you have the frequency as well as the musical note. So you don't have to you don't have to scroll through other mo- modes to get between the two. So for me, when I'm tuning, I'm almost always tuning to a musical pitch. So I just put the thing on. I I get the lugs in tune using the frequency, and then I get the drum in tune by using the musical note. So not having to push any buttons, just turn it on and tune is yeah. great. And I'm. So it's I think it's like fifty bucks as opposed to a hundred bucks for the regular TuneBot. Uh, yeah, and it still clamps onto the drum. It still does everything you need it to do. Yeah. Um, and by the way, I don't know if you've done this, but I have a trick that one of our students, or no, it's actually one of our substitute teachers, Alan Schechner. He showed me for tuning the bass drum because the bass drum it's really hard to clamp it onto those bass drum hoops. Right. So what he does is he puts a stick across the bass drum hoop and then clamps the TuneBot to the stick, uh. and it's. Perfect. It works every time, and uh, so anyway, so it's it's a great way to tune your bass drum because I for a long time I wasn't using the tune bot on my bass drum, and I don't I don't see the tune bot as something that's cheating. I, some people are like, ah, oh, isn't that cheating? And I'm like, no, I don't think so at all. Don't you no. want your drums just to sound good and consistent? I mean, would you want you know? your guitarist to have to tune by a, a, a pitch <laughs> pipe every single time? No, or? never. <laughs> and I mean, I think the other thing is it actually trains you to use your ear because you start to hear like, oh my goodness, I. I'm sure you noticed what it was like the first time you used the TuneBot to tune 
to turn your key less than an eighth of a turn and it completely changed the pitch. But yeah. you didn't hear it, but the TuneBot did. Yeah. And it trains your ear to be way more sensitive. Yeah, so I, I took it to a to the gig on Saturday where I was playing a house kit and I just knew, all right, I know these heads are beat up, but I know I like the floor tom to a G, I like the rack tom to a C and the snare drum an F or wherever it, it needs to fall. Yeah. So I was able to just get it at the right pitch at least. I didn't spend any time fine tuning it, but it just took a little yeah. bit and what I what I had learned during the second set was even though I couldn't tell, they had dropped in pitch by the time I got to the second set. Right. So it just took like not, not even a minute to get these drums tuned to a point where I felt comfortable. So it's, it's not cheating. There's not cheating at all. It, I think everyone, just like a guitarist, needs to have a clip-on guitar tuner, even though they might be able to tune by doing, you know, fifth fret on the E string to get to the A. and then Right. They just can't, or using the harmonic method. I mean, sure, those work, but you clip on a nice little guitar tuner and you can do it silently and really fast it's like the drum equivalent there's nothing worse than being at a, at a gig and as your singer's trying to prep for the next song and get the crowd ready you're like dun, 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 dun. <laughs> it's like holy crap bro are you serious do you not have just like one of those old school boss tuners that you can plug into or yeah, something exactly. uh it's so funny yeah, yeah and, and i think also people need to know that it really should be named the fine tune bot i don't want you guys putting the tune bot on your drum when the drum is completely slack and you start trying to tune to a pitch, you're going to, you need to get the drum, you know, there needs to be tone coming out of the drum. You know, yeah. you need to get it kind of, kind of close to where you're like, yeah, that's close, but now I want to perfect it. And then the tune bot's fantastic. If you start tuning with it slack and same with the, what was it? The, not the rhythm watch, but Thomas thing. What was that thing called the tension watch? Yeah. I think same thing. If you put that on, you just start tuning it, the whole thing's just going to be out of sorts. So, you know, get your drum close to where you're like, okay, this is this is kind of where I like it, but I wish it was, you know, fine-tuned from there. And then that TuneBot is a genius thing. All right, my pick of the week this time is something that I've already used in the past, but it's more specific. So we've talked about the podcast called Off Camera before with Sam Jones. Sam Jones is an independent filmmaker and fantastic photographer and he happens to mainly photograph celebrities so he has a podcast where he eventually interviews these celebrities that he's become friends with and it's a very long form podcast and it allows these celebrities to really really relax and you you get the real version of them and so I wanted to bring up the episode with William H. Macy which oh, yeah. I just found have you heard that one that's my favorite one god it's it's incredible it's so raw often. and real <laughs> yeah. oh I loved it, man. And it was it's funny because it was one of the ones that I kept just sliding past. I was like, I'm not going to – what am I listening to? The guy from Fargo? Yeah. you know. And, dude, it was brilliant. Yeah, it he, was so insightful. Yeah, you can replace acting or theater with drumming and music, and it's a 100% parallel. That's exactly what I mean. Like everything he said, I was like, that's my life. That's my life. Yep, I felt like that. <laughs> And then, there, and then, as it kind of progressed, it was like I should do that. I will apply that to drumming. I will apply that to giving clinics. Yeah. So uh, once again, I know that's got to be like the worst faux pas ever. Is that on our podcast we're telling everybody to listen to a different podcast? But you know what? Hopefully, he'll return to favor. <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine, Sam? You know what though? No, I have to bring this up. Him and Jack Black were talking about drummers, and I almost lost it. I was driving to L.A. And they were debating like Gene Krupa and Buddy Rich. And I was like, please don't do this. Please don't do this. <laughs> and all the knowledge was so wrong. So wrong. Everything they said was just – it couldn't have been more wrong. And I was like, okay. I mean, And I listened to like the Dan Patrick show and it will be the same thing. He's like, well, dude, I mean what are we talking about? 
we're talking about John Bonham. And I mean, that's like, he had the fastest hands ever, right? And then like someone else would chime in like, no, I'm pretty sure it was Louis Belson. I'm like, would you guys stop? Well, let's <laughs> no, talk about t- the uh, Suzuki method or, or what's the acting <laughs> method? The uh- Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and, and exactly. If we started getting into like, well, you know, I think it's just about being a method drummer and, and you know, being, being a... <laughs> the De Niro but this, method. <laughs> exactly. But you're right, though. There are a lot of parallels. When you think about being a method actor... I remember one of the greatest things I ever heard was from when Bill Cosby was talking about him trying to look like Max Roach on his first time sitting in a jam. And that's a real thing. Like when I play jazz, I hold my sticks traditional. I'm terrible at traditional grip, but it's a method thing. It gets me more into the jazz mindset. I see all the jazz drummers before me. And there's just different things you can do. So I think acting and music, I think art has a lot of parallels. But anyways, check out Off Camera with Sam Jones. It's a podcast. And check out the William H. Macy episode if you want to get started somewhere. And it'll it'll launch you into how cool that podcast really is. All right, everybody. We will see you next week. Well, we won't see you and you won't see us. But we'll definitely talk to you. I will be just coming back from my camp with J.P. Bouvet and Matt Halpern in New York, which is one of my only things I'm doing this year outside of my own drum camp. So I'm excited to get to hang with my two best friends in the world and then uh I'll let you guys know how that can went do 30 campers that's great yeah for in the, you in the winter in <laughs> yeah. the mountains of new york <laughs> 30 campers holy crap and every one of them is going to want to blaze a solo on one of our three kits yeah. and so uh I, I'm, I'm hoping it'll be pretty amazing i mean luckily jp matt and myself seem to attract some of the best human beings ever so i'm really excited to meet all these people and get to hang with them so until next week my friend i will see you soon all right see you Later, brother.